we're in the third week of our series on the third person, okay? Five weeks in the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, We've looked at who the Spirit is uh, and the works of the Spirit, and now today we're thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Um, And I just wanna begin by saying that this series of five weeks could have been six months, okay? This could, it could have been just a month on the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's a huge topic. Um, the Holy Spirit isn't just an add-on to Christianity, okay? Because sometimes we, we treat him like that, okay? He's not just a helpful byproduct to being a Christian. The Holy Spirit is God. He's one of the Trinity. So this is a huge topic, So this morning, we're not going to deep dive into each of the nine individual fruit. Um, It's not going to be a comprehensive study into the detail of what is and what isn't fruit, or about the acts of the flesh. Sorry, those of you who read that list of the acts of the flesh and thought, what's Dan going to say about that? It's not about the detail of that. I'll give you a hint. It says they are obvious, okay? Um, It's not going to be a ton of practices for encouraging growth either, okay? That's not what we're going to hear this morning. But what we will do is think about what the fruit of the Spirit is, how it grows, and how we can keep in step with the Spirit. Next week, we're going to be thinking about the gifts of the Spirit, okay? Um, And I think when we think about the gifts of the Spirit, we, we all probably fall into one of four categories, okay? Some of us might be quite excited about that, okay? Some of us might have a level of anxiety about thinking about the gifts, Um, A few of us might just have a a desire for very careful theological reflection and discernment about the gifts, and some might just be really, really cynical, okay? Um, I don't want to make assumptions about anybody here, okay, but I come from a Pentecostal background originally. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, Now I'm Presbyterian. Having had that background, okay, I've probably had a little bit more experience around the gifts of the Spirit um, than maybe some Presbyterians. Would that, would that be incorrect? Or is that, that's probably true, yeah. Um, and having had that experience, I probably fall into a little bit of all four of those categories, okay? But thankfully, Stuart is gonna handle all of that next week, okay? No pressure. Uh, no, you're good, you're good, you're good. Um, Thinking about the fruit of the Spirit probably brings slightly milder reactions than the gifts. Um, we, we often think of them as, as nice, they're, they're, they're safe, they're encouraging, they're positive. In fact, in our living room, we have a print of the nine uh, fruit of the spirit inside a nice little picture of a pear, because that's how we think of it. It's lovely, it sits just behind our sofa. And they are, they're really encouraging. Uh, in fact, they're, they're more than that. The fruit of the spirit is a beautiful picture of Christ-likeness of what we see displayed in the personhood of our Lord and Savior. Their description of holy functioning life and relationship, a picture of order, of things the way they were designed, which in essence is what walking in step with the Spirit brings. But they don't really get our blood pumping, do they? Next week, I imagine people will turn up quite excited to hear what Stuart's got to say. You probably didn't turn up like that this morning. They don't seem supernatural. They don't sound particularly special. Um, They sound like they're almost within our natural grasp. Um, It's almost a, a vaguely realistic picture of living our best life. 
Because it's easy for us to look at these and think of them as like a list of goals uh, for growing as followers of Christ. You know, become more joyful. Uh, Learn patience. Be good and kind to others. Exercise self-control. If we tweak them slightly, we could possibly hear, make good choices. Fix your eyes on the prize. Learn from your mistakes. Make a to-do list. Get up at 5 a.m. Start a journal. Get a mentor. Go to the gym. Cut out carbs. Be your best self. But that starts to sound a little bit like Jake Humphreys or Andrew Tate or one of these great life coaches. And that's not what this is. It's not life coaching. It isn't about making the most of these human bodies and minds we've been given. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It's a harvest. It's fruit, a harvest. It grows. And it's not of our making. It's of the Spirit of God. So put aside any copies of Joel Austin's Your Best Life Now or Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. I've probably offended a couple of people around uh, the, the church by saying that. But let's read from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, the first thing we need to consider as we look at this passage is how it fits with the start of our reading today. Verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So as followers of Christ, as members of this family of God, we're called to be free. If we're familiar with Paul's writing throughout the New Testament, we'll know that the last thing he would have told the early Christians to do would be follow a new set of laws. That was gone with Christ. So we're no longer slaves to the law, but there are expectations upon our actions. Having received his saving grace through the cross, our reaction should be a desire to live in a fashion that is fitting of him. And to fully understand that, I think we we need to clarify a couple of large but vitally important theological terms, salvation and sanctification. You heard us singing about salvation earlier. Many of you will already understand these, but I'm not going to make assumptions, Um, so stick with me, and I'll start with a a terrible illustration. In the past few years, my wife and I have both picked up hobbies, okay? Um, my wife, Suzanne, has picked up sewing, and I've tried my hand at a bit of woodwork, okay? Um, neither of us are experts. Suzanne's much more advanced than I am. Um, after all, we have small children, so hobbies aren't something that come up that we get to do too regularly. However, for both of these hobbies, I've heard people who know a lot more about them, who are a lot more talented, um, who are in this congregation, actually, say things like this. Are you giving it a go? That makes you a woodworker. Have you sewn something? That makes you a sewer. The label isn't dependent on the level of expertise. However, both the sewing community and the woodwork community, like most kind of skills-based communities, 
are also both obsessed with the idea of learning more, that there's always more skill to develop, that you can get better at this. And this is a bit like our life in Christ. Salvation happens at the point where we accept Jesus. It's what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. By dying in our place, we were saved from the punishment of our sins, and we, earned, we weren't fit to obey the law, so Jesus did it for us and earned this salvation. It grants us eternal life with the Father and acceptance because our sin is covered by his perfect life. We are viewed as holy. So it's a bit like being called a sewer or a woodworker. That's, that's done because we've accepted that. That bit's done. It happened on the cross in Jesus' own words. It is finished. Sanctification then begins. It's the outworking or maybe better described as the inworking of our salvation. It's the work of the Spirit to make us Christ-like. It's the restoring of order that we talked about. The ongoing work, and it won't be finished until we see Jesus again. It doesn't matter how well it's been going, salvation has happened. When we know Jesus, it's happened. It doesn't matter how, how poorly our sanctification is going, if we know Jesus, we are in him, we are saved in him. But there's always more to learn, always further to go in our sanctification. And this salvation and sanctification was prophesied about in the Old Testament. This is from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. That's salvation. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the sanctification. The next verse says, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's the ending we get to look forward to. This is a prophetic word of God's salvation and God's sanctification through the Spirit. And for we who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our salvation is in place. We are viewed as clean and our sanctification is happening. It's ongoing and the end result is something pretty special. So, how does this relate to the fruit of the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is the outward display of that sanctification happening in our lives. It's, it's for all of us who have that salvation, who know Jesus, we will then have that sanctification and the fruit of the Spirit will grow in our lives. So, what is the fruit of the Spirit. We've read them. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And like I said earlier, we, we, we don't have time to take a deep dive into each of these individual uh, fruit. But let's just take a few minutes to clarify a little bit about what each of them are. Because as citizens of this fallen world, our idea of some of these perfect fruit will be twisted by what we see in the world around us. So the first of these is love. These three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So it makes sense that it's the first of the fruit. 
So remove any ideas of romantic comedies from your mind. They don't sum up this agape love. We read in the passage today, serve humbly in love. Love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, always protects, trusts, hopes, always perseveres. That doesn't sound much like the movies, does it? It's not what we see in the world. 1 John 4 says this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This fruit of love is challenging. It's not pink and fluffy. It's in the dirt and the pain of life. It's sacrificial. It doesn't depend on what we get back and what we receive. It's not dependent on worthiness. It's the type of love that Jesus displayed in dying for us. And next is joy. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy isn't the happiness we feel at because of the experience of a blessing. It's our delight in knowing we'll be with God. It's the beauty, despite circumstances, of knowing the creator of this world. Then we have peace. We think of peace as the absence of war or feeling okay about a situation, don't we? But this peace is the inner confidence of knowing God's hand in control, even if the situation is dire. Peace doesn't mean that we are confident that God will make it work out for us. It's that we're confident that one day we'll be with him. It's not indifference. Being filled with peace doesn't mean a lack of zeal for the truth. It's trusting in his sovereign power in the midst of the chaos of this world. And then we have patience. I knew I'd be challenged this week reading about patience. You know when you know you're going to do something, you know this is not going to be a fun experience? Because I knew that I would be challenged by the lack of patience I have with my children. Um, They are like their dad. They are stubborn. (laughs) It's completely my fault. And I need the spirit rather than my weak flesh to form our relationship. But I was also challenged by this this quote from a little book about the fruit of the spirit by Dr. J.V. Fresco. And writing on the fruit, he said this. We certainly see patience in Christ, who lovingly taught his disciples when they were slow to learn, listen, and respond. How long-suffering is the Lord with us, and yet how short-tempered are we with those around us? We are impatient, waiting for them to be at our own level of sanctification, or hold to the same convictions that we do, if we recognize that our sanctification is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit, then perhaps seeing an area where we think someone needs to be sanctified will be an opportunity to learn patience and the Holy Spirit will produce it in us. It's hard. I hear this clearly. I am constantly, constantly um, convicted of my shortcomings 
Um, even before speaking, Stuart bent over and encouraged me, and then we're praying, and the devil's just telling me that you shouldn't be doing this. You're not capable of this. You're, you're not worthy of speaking. Um, so I, I'm always very thankful for God's gracious nature that he would use me in any way. This is not me saying, I'm great, I'm sanctified, you'll need to be sanctified, what's going on with you? Um, but as a leader, doing work in church all the time, I'm sure other leaders will attest that sometimes it's frustrating when maybe there's a lack of commitment by people or a lack of time or lack of energy people will put in or a lack of growth in people. So I'm really thankful for the Lord for calling that out in me and showing me that what I need is the Spirit's patience in me um, also for myself. Kindness, goodness, and faithfulness is not that which is self-serving. It's not hypocritical. It comes with integrity and deep inner security of being held in Christ. Gentleness is not a fear of speaking up for what's right. It's humble character that draws in the weak and lowly. It's the gentleness of how our Lord treated us and treats us when we deserve punishment, but he gives us grace and mercy. And finally, self-control is ultimately the handing over of our will to God's will. It's not about bottling up anger and passion. It's about handing that over to Christ. So as you can see, this fruit is more than just a good way of living. It's more than simply obeying commands. It's more than taking on good advice. It's growth in Christ-likeness. It's following his example. It's the Spirit sanctifying us. Growth in the fruit of the Spirit is in our lives is the now but not fully yet of the kingdom of God. The original design, the order that God created being restored bit by bit in us. We see this order when we look right back to the creation account in Genesis 1. Verse 26, and God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. We are designed to be Christ-like. Not the same as being God. We are not little gods. Don't get that wrong. But the design for this world is what was described in this fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Genesis 2 account of man's creation says this. Then the Lord, formed, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And then we have a parallel in John 20 when Jesus returns from the resurrection and sees the disciples and says, says this. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Lord breathed into Adam, into man, and the breath of life came and the man became a living being, and until the fall lived in perfect harmony. Things were the way they should be, living in the Garden of Eden in perfect conditions, in perfect order. And then Jesus breathes the breath of life into the disciples, sends them out, tells them to receive the Holy Spirit, the fruit of whom is Christ-likeness. 
There's a reason why listing these nine fruits, even in a twisted world that we live in, sounds like a pretty good rule of life. It's because it's the natural design for how things were meant to be. His order, the way this world was originated. Jesus' perfect life, his guiltless death and resurrection completed the job of defeating sin and death. He won the war against evil and disorder. That was how we get our salvation. And then he left his spirit to begin rebuilding the kingdom, to restore order and bring us back into God's design. Our sanctification is part of that. Every time we display this fruit in our lives, we are part of his kingdom come. The harvest hasn't fully grown yet and it won't until Jesus returns, but glimpses of it are displayed in us displaying the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Dr. Fresco writes that quite literally, when we walk in the Spirit, the love that we show others, the joy that we know even during trials, the peace of God that we have and share with others through the gospel, in all these things we are experiencing the manifesting and manifesting the very things God promised through the prophet Isaiah. What many do not realize then is that God is fulfilling ancient promises of redemption through Christ and the Spirit in and through them. The, the Spirit is bringing the kingdom, or at least glimpses of it, through our lives. What a privilege. Some of our communities this week were given homework um, to ask God to show them the fruit of the Spirit growing in other people in our church and then to encourage them in this. Why don't we all think and pray on that this week? Ask God to show us where love is growing in somebody, where self-control is growing, where joy is growing and to encourage them. Imagine that encouragement of someone telling you that they are seeing a glimpse of the kingdom come and the growth of the Spirit in their lives. The next step is to think about how this fruit grows. I've been really blessed by the Christian pastor and author, Timothy Keller, who sadly passed away on Friday. Um, so it feels like a bit of a fitting tribute um, to share some of his thoughts on this, which I found very helpful in the past week. Dr. Carroll notes that the fruit of the Spirit being fruit act in a similar way in how they grow. And there are four helpful ways for us to consider this. The first is that the fruit of the Spirit's growth is inevitable. When we moved into our home in February 2022, just before COVID hit, horrible timing, uh, we didn't realize that there was a raspberry plant down at the bottom of our garden. Um, there was some trellis there that we then pulled out. We cleared the area uh, and we didn't, didn't have a clue this raspberry plant was in the middle of it. So not knowing it was there, we didn't actually pull up the bush. So while it was uncared for and its environment was destroyed, the roots were still in place. So what happened when season came? Raspberries grew. You could argue it was inevitable because through the roots, the life would find a way. And in the same way, the fruit of the Spirit is inevitable because the roots of our salvation and the breath of life that the Holy Spirit brings to our lives. 
Secondly, growth is gradual. We can't expect somebody to come to faith in an alpha group on a Wednesday, turn up at church, and look like the perfect Christian, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's not how it works. These things are gradual. These things take time. We might struggle to see the process sometimes, but maybe for those wiser saints, maybe you can look back and see in hindsight how your level of patience is just a bit better than it was previously. Thirdly, the roots are internal. Why we see outward traits of the fruit, they're simply the display of the work of the Spirit. So you could take a Christmas tree, okay, a plastic Christmas tree like we have in the house. Ours is about 25 years old, I think, at this point. Okay, and you could take apples and you could put them on this tree, okay? And then every time you pick an apple, you would taste an apple. It would be delicious. It would taste like an apple, look like an apple. It would be just like an apple. But it wouldn't grow. And it wouldn't be replaced. There would be no new growth because there's no internal roots. And in the same way, we might see what we think is love, patience, kindness in our lives, but without the inner working of the Holy Spirit, that true fruit is not gonna grow. And fourthly, the growth will be symmetrical. It's not quite the best word I would choose for it, but hear me out. The phrase that Paul uses is the fruit of the Spirit, not these fruits. This is a harvest of Christ-likeness being formed. So unlike the gifts where Paul talks about one being given to one and another as God pleases, that's not how he talks about the fruit. The fruit is not a selection of nice traits where maybe you get kindness, but you get goodness. The Spirit will grow in all of us. True, spirit of the, true fruit of the Spirit will grow together. Now, that's not to say that the growth we see is in a set fashion. And it's not to say that we aren't predisposed to maybe being, having strengths more in one area than another. Some of us need a bit more help with self-control than others. I know my wife has an extra portion of patience to put up with me. But the Spirit works to restore all that is lacking, all that's disordered. So, when we come to Christ and accept this salvation, the promised Holy Spirit indwells us. And we can expect him to grow this fruit in our lives. It's the outworking of our sanctification, the reordering of all that's been misordered in our lives. And while the harvest of this fruit might be gradual, might be frustratingly slow, and we'll not see its completion until Jesus comes, it's also inevitable. And praise God, it's the work of the Spirit, so it's not down to any of our weak beings to make it happen. However, this passage also tells us that we have a responsibility. Throughout the passage, there are a number of commands and warnings that we can't ignore. And these roughly parallel the conflict that we read about in verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you, do not, so that, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Imagine the question, I imagine that the question for many of us okay, when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, is if I've come to Christ and I truly believe 
then why am I not seeing this fruit? Why is there not more of this growth in my life? And our answer comes in that verse 17 in this conflict between the flesh and the fruit. Paul talks about it more personally in Romans 7 when he goes on a, on a bit of a rant for 10 or 15 verses and which culminates in verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. So we can be encouraged that it's, it's not unique to us. The great apostle Paul struggled with this. So struggling to reconcile this conflict between the Spirit's work and our sinful desires is not unique. It's a result of this not yet of the kingdom, still under the curse of this twisted, disordered world. Throughout the passage, we're told not to indulge the flesh, not to gratify the desires. And then later, the language turns to parallel what Christ did for us. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh of its passions and desires. This picture of crucifixion is helpful. It's a helpful way to see how we need to treat these sinful desires. And it parallels the language Jesus used in Luke 9 when he was with the 12 apostles and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. John Stott helpfully describes parallels between crucifixion and how we must treat the acts of flesh. And he describes its nature as ruthless, painful, and decisive. Were to be ruthless, crucifixion was a barbaric form of murder. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. We're not getting into the detail of the acts of the flesh, but the key line is, they are obvious. Ruthless crucifixion is a fitting death for these obvious acts of the flesh. Secondly, this death is painful. Don't expect an easy ride. It's gonna be rough at times. It hurts to deny our flesh, to deny ourselves for Christ's sake. And thirdly, we need to be decisive. Crucifixion was slow and gradual, but it was final. It was sure. Soldiers were present to ensure its finality. And in the same way, we need to be decisive with our sin. We've all experienced that sin that we think we've put to death, and then it comes back to tempt us, claws back at us in our weaker moments. The acts of the flesh must be nailed to the cross, the same spot where Jesus decisively took punishment for them. I would add to that list that crucifixion and our battle with the flesh is slow, excruciatingly slow. Or at least it can be. If you speak to some wise saints who've been Christians for years, I'm sure they'll be able to tell you that they've struggled with sin for years and years and years. And praise God, they're still fighting that fight. Alongside this warning to crucify the flesh, Paul commands us to instead live lives that align to the Spirit. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We read similar warnings from Paul throughout the New Testament, throughout his letters where he warns churches to have minds set on what the Spirit desires. It's governed by the Spirit. Set our minds on things above. To think of such things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Scott states that it's not enough to yield passively to the Spirit's control. We must also walk actively in the Spirit's way. So what's the answer to this? How, how do we go about that? We, we know the solution, don't we? Anybody who's been around church for a while knows the solution, even if we don't want to let on. Practically, it's to draw near to Christ. And primarily we do that through drawing near to him in prayer and drawing near to his word, which Ephesians 6 tells us is the sword of the spirit. I read this week that when ministers of the gospel faithfully preach the word of God and focus upon the person and work of Christ, the same power that brought the world into existence is unleashed upon the people of God in corporate worship. Praise God that there's no reliance on me to have any power when I'm up here. For for Stuart to have any power, the Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God, that which created the world, is with us. We have it in our pews. We hear earlier about the house of language not, not having it. We have it right here with us. Don't take it for granted. It's on our phones. We need to press into the Word of God truly believe that it has power. And we have this open line of communication with the creator in prayer. Jesus has opened that line for us to speak to the Father. We're looking at prayer these four weeks and practicing the way. You'd be very welcome to join us tonight if you weren't here last week, or if you were here last week. You'll hear a little bit more about how when we follow Jesus' example, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's praying for the fruit of the Spirit, praying for the order God designed to be restored. And even better, if we can't find the words to articulate our prayer, our communication with God, then Romans 8 tells us the Spirit steps in for us. Romans 8, verse 26, 27 says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. It's the Spirit praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on our behalf. This Holy Spirit, he's all right, you know. We need to get on board with him. Let's walk in step with him. We're going to sing praise again in the moment so the band want to come up. Um, I hope you've been encouraged by, what, encouraged by what we've read today. I know I was incredibly encouraged this week, um, which is saying something because we had a, a bit of a rough week as a family. And we've noticed the correlation in our family between times where I've been speaking to the church, or they've been doing something that's been stepping out for God, and our family taking the hit. 
Um, it, I guess it's the easiest way for Satan to get at us with small children, sickness, or clashing relationships, or challenging behavior. It's an easy target in many ways. And this week it was sickness, which meant pressure on our rest, pressure on time to prepare, pressure on my other responsibilities. Um, and on that note, thank you to those who I cancelled on this week, who were very gracious to me. I firmly believe there's no coincidence in the fact that this came on a week when we were digging into and I was studying the fruit of the Spirit and the power that comes with the Holy Spirit. I'm trying not to be overly spiritual, but when we wage war on the acts of the flesh, when we crucify our sinful nature and turn our eyes instead towards heaven to the author and perfecter of our faith, we will encounter opposition. It's inevitable. Would you please stand with me? Just before we worship, I want to pray for us all. Um, I want to pray that the Spirit's protection over us. Both corporately as a church and also as families and individuals who are here. And for those at home. If you feel like you're particularly under attack at the moment, maybe you would consider just putting your hands out in front of you, especially if you feel like that's because you've been pushing into the spirit, if you've been aiming to, to kill and crucify those ways of the flesh. And we just want to pray that as we do that, as we press into walking with the spirit, to following God's commands, that he would protect us because he is much greater than any power of the devil. We want to just pray that we're just, by hand, putting out our hands, we're just saying that it's not about me. I don't have strength for this, but may your spirit rest on me. Protect me. I need you. Let's pray. Father God, we know you love us and we love you. Father, we know that your power is greater than anything of this world, any acts of the flesh, anything that is against the work of your spirit. Lord, protect us as we worship, protect us as we worship in our lives as well, protect us as we go out as your family in the world. Protect us from the twistedness of this world. Help us see past the disorder to see your order, to see who you are. Protect us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, may we be drawn to press into your word, press into communication with you through prayer. May we be drawn to walk in the way of the Spirit in all of our lives. May the transforming power of your Holy Spirit work amongst our families, through us as individuals, and through us as a church. And God will help us to look forward to that end result, Lord, as we are sanctified and eventually get to be with you, to see you face to face. Lord, for us that know you, Lord, we thank you that you have cleansed us. You see us as holy. We thank you for your son's death on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, drive us to be excited for the sanctification that you want to do in us, to see this fruit grow in our lives, that we may be a representation of Christ-likeness to the world. Grow in us, Lord, may your spirit be upon us and be with us now as we worship. Amen.